I don't do this too often, but I would like to make a promise. Uh, if you listen carefully to what we have to say, I think I could assure you that there'll be no reason for any person here to leave not feeling that you are right with God. You can settle the matter uh, in the few moments before us. You can determine before you leave tonight that you're going to be right with God His way. And no matter what else may befall you, if you are right with God, uh, that is everything. And if you're wrong about how to be right with God, you're in deep trouble. Uh, this particular text, the one we'll look to tonight, will show you the way this is magnificent, the way to be right with God. Just that it is a possibility ought to overwhelm us because we're wrong about all manner of things. And for God to extend to us the possibility of being in right standing with him is in and of itself quite an amazing thing. If you get this right, how to be right with God, your life will be forevermore transformed. So pay attention. Uh, Paul has spoken to us about the gospel in Romans 1.16. It's a story. It's good news about how to be right with God. And in Romans 1.16, we dealt with this a few weeks ago. This is just a summary. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I mentioned that it is peculiar for him even to say that. What in it is there that he might have been ashamed about? Well, the story of Jesus is the story about a Jewish person who was crucified. And on both counts, it wasn't a popular story. Because in the Roman Empire, being Jewish was not very popular. So that's strike number one. And being crucified was really not a good thing. That was a degrading form of capital punishment. So a story about a Jew who was crucified doesn't really win friends and influence people. Paul, being human, could therefore have been tempted to deny the gospel, even to be ashamed of it. But he made quite a bold declaration. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. And here's why. It has the potential. It has power to transform a life. It can lead to the redemption, the salvation of anyone, Jew or Gentile, contingent on that person's belief. The gospel, said Paul, when combined with trust and faith in it and in the one who the gospel is about, a crucified, risen Savior, the gospel, when combined by one's personal faith, has the power to so transform a life that that person will never be the same. And therefore, Paul I said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And now, in the verse before us tonight, and it's just one verse, it's just verse 17, but it's filled with stuff, potentially life-changing uh, insights. In verse uh, 17 of chapter 1, with regard to the gospel, uh, Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God, and when you read that, you could have mixed emotions. Just that phrase, the righteousness of God. You could say, I know that God is righteous and that's a good thing. But you could also say, it is a fearful thing to me that God is righteous. Because that God is righteous enhances the reality that I ain't. That God is right 
stands in stark contrast with the fact that I'm wrong. I'm wrong. There's something wrong about me in thought, word, and deed. I have a proclivity to sin, and a righteous God does not sin. So if you declared to me this in the gospel, the righteousness of God, I'm fearful about it. How do I stand rightly before a God who's characterized by righteousness. I'm not like him by nature, neither are you. By nature, he is right. By nature, we are wrong. So hearing about God's righteousness can really be a source of fear. In fact, it was for someone, you've heard of him, called Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German monk. He was a Catholic priest at one time. He was a, a uh, a very well-known theologian in his day. He was a key figure, I think you know this, in the Protestant Reformation. He passed away in 1546. Before he did, he studied Romans. And in particular, he pondered this very verse, which we are reflecting on tonight. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And here's what he said about this very verse. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. So you see that concept, that phrase, the righteousness of God, really disturbed Martin Luther greatly. How could he, he was thinking, ever be right with such a God? And then he said this, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Martin Luther got this right, and therefore, he was not wrong about this. He was right. And if we get this right, we won't be wrong either. Here's the point. In this verse, the phrase, the righteousness of God, does not refer to the righteousness God possesses, though he does. It refers to the righteousness he is willing to bestow. How can you or I ever imagine being right with God unless he enables it? You might be indeed a better person than I am, but no matter how much better you think you are than me, you still fall plenty short of God's righteousness by relying on self-righteousness. But if God were to grant us a measure of righteousness, meaning right standing with him, the righteous one, that would be more wonderful, don't you agree, than mere words could even express. Folks, there's something really, really wrong with us. We live in God's world, and yet we seek to be independent of him. It's called sin. Sin is not something we just mistakenly do from time to time. You hear public figures caught in sin uh, euphemize it by calling it a mistake. I made a mistake. No, no, no. We don't have to worry about standing before God 
as he parades before us our mistakes, it's not that for which we'll be judged. It's our sheer and utter rebellion against God. I live in his world as if he doesn't exist. If it feels good, I will do it. Get all the gusto. Be the master of your own destiny. Don't deny yourself that bit of pleasure. Don't let anyone rain on your parade. This is sheer and utter rebellion against Almighty God. And the insinuation that one such as us could actually leave this place in right standing with God is absolutely overwhelming. But imagine there is no Jesus. And imagine there is no Bible telling us about Jesus. Imagine those terrible realities You and I, if that was the case, there is no Jesus and there is no Bible. You and I could never, would never know of God's willingness to make us right with him. You see, even in our wildest imagination, we couldn't imagine it. None of us could come up with the possibility of being right with God. Not one of the religions of the world have anything to say to us about the kind of righteousness which we can discover In verse 17 of chapter 1, not my own religion, Judaism, not Catholicism, not Shintoism, not Buddhism, not Islam, not any other is. Did I offend just about everybody? I'm trying to, did I leave anybody out? I'm trying to tell, I didn't say there aren't attractive aspects to these religions. I'm just telling you, not a one has anything to say to us about how to be right with God the right way. Not a one. Well, so apart from the revelation which we have through the incarnate Jesus and the written word of God, apart from those things, how could we possibly know of God's willingness to bestow his righteousness upon us? Well, the verse gives the answer. It says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, and here's the point, is revealed the willingness of God to put us in the right with him is a revealed marvel. It doesn't emanate from any man-made world religion. It comes from on high. It's a deposit made from transcendent deity and brought down to earth so that we could apprehend it. It goes beyond human imagination It is supernatural. It supersedes wisdom and strategies and philosophy. It is a gift of God. The means by which we could be right with God is a revealed truth. It cannot come from us. The idea does not, it cannot originate with us. Not in our wildest imagination could we imagine the willingness of a righteous God to make us right with him. We could not imagine God's willingness nor his way to make us right with him. If we even accept his willingness to make us right with him, there's no way we could be right about his way to make us right with him. Here it is. It is for God himself to die. Nobody could come up with this because God, by definition, is not subject to death. Only the creature is subject to death, not the creator. So for God 
the deathless one, to subject himself to that very reality which victimizes us all. For God to do that is something we could never, ever imagine. But that's the very thing he did in Jesus, his own son. He died in our place to pay for our sins. It is a marvel that not even the most fanciful among us could ever imagine. That God would reduce himself for one such as us who in our sinful behavior have reduced his holiness. That that God would suffer death for one such as you and I is something we never ever could have imagined. And this is the very thing he did and he told us about it in the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So first, the gospel tells us that God's righteousness demands that we be judged for our sins. Did you know that? That's not good news. But then we get this. The gospel tells us that God's love provided what his righteousness demanded. His righteousness demands that we be holy and without sin. <sighs> Fat chance. That's what his holiness requires and demands. But his mercy and grace provided what his very holiness demanded. He sent his son to die as a substitute for one such as us, sinners. And in so doing, he paid the penalty for our sin in full. Because God's righteous demands and claims have been fully satisfied, God can save all who avail themselves of the work of Jesus Christ. Luther thought long and hard about the phrase, the righteousness of God. And at first he misunderstood it to mean the righteousness which God possesses, and he certainly does. But then he realized the phrase, the righteousness of God, meant just as much the righteousness God was willing to bestow. And when he saw this, he said, thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Have you had that experience? I remember when it happened to me 40 years ago, but like it was yesterday, like it was four minutes ago. I couldn't have expressed it as eloquently as Martin Luther did, but I was free. It was more than that God just forgave me. I understand that. He gave me an entirely new status. Now I stood before him not merely as a forgiven one, but as one to whom his righteousness was imputed. He took his righteousness and put it on my side of the ledger. So he saw me to be in right standing. And now all I had to do is live in light of my new status in Christ Jesus. Luther said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. For me, it was heaven on earth. I can't imagine what the heaven which is above the earth will be like. For me, it was heaven, like, and I've not looked back. I've not regretted making that decision. I'm so grateful that in spite of who I am, it's an in spite of thing, God said to me, 
I have bestowed upon you right standing. You stand rightly with me. I do not see you as a debtor. You're not at odds with me. You're no longer alienated. You're not an adversary. I see you as being more than just a forgiven one who I don't like, love, or trust. I now see you to be a child of mine who bears my nature and to whom I have imputed my own righteousness. Good night. Luther had to be right, not wrong, about two things to be right about how to be right with God. He had to accept first the willingness of God to bestow his righteousness upon him. And second, he had to accept the way by which God would do it. And that way is from faith to faith. And that's what the verse says. It's from faith to faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It says right there, from faith to faith. Folks, you or I could not have come up with this. This is a revealed marvel. The way to be right with God is by faith. Trust, that's what it means. The means of being right with God is to trust in his provision for all that is wrong about us. The way to be right with God is by faith, is to trust in his provision for our sin. The way to be right with God, it says here, is from faith to faith. It's about faith, in other words, from beginning to end. Being right with God does not begin with works and end with works. That's called religion. Do this, don't do that. Practice these rituals, these ceremonies, these do's, these don'ts, these rules, these regulations. They may not be inherently wrong, but they're dead wrong. If you think by them, you can climb this ladder of self-righteousness, and it will take you high enough up to be worthy of an unapproachably holy God. Oh, no. Oh, no at all. No, 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 no. But being right with God doesn't begin with works and end with works. Our works cannot make up for our sin against a holy God. Our works of self-righteousness fall far short of his righteousness. And being right with God doesn't begin with faith and end with works. Now, that's the one that trips you and I up as Christians. We know our experience, our salvation experience began with faith and then many of us have lost the joy of that salvation because now we think we sustain it not by faith but by works so we have become burdened by guilt that is unnecessary we think God got us off to a good start in that by faith he allowed us to be introduced to himself and put in right standing but now we labor under the horrific misconception it's from the pits of hell that to sustain my right standing with God I have to live in such fashion that I'm always right and do no wrong and so now I'm less at ease than I ever was the peace which I'm supposed to be having with God by virtue of the fact 
that I'm in right relationship with him, I taste so little of because I think I must contribute to the sustenance of my relationship with him. I'm absolutely persuaded that he will treat me the way everyone does. And that is to say, I meet someone for the first time, he likes me and I like him or her, whatever the deal is, we become close friends, everything is fine, but I have to be very careful because the minute I slip up, I will fall out of sorts with that person. I will fall from favor. That's the way it is with human beings. And sadly, we conform God to the same image. But he said, no, you don't get it. Being right with me begins with faith is sustained by faith and culminates in faith. From beginning to end, it never changes. You don't get off to a start with God by trusting in him, and then you sustain it by trusting in yourself. You don't do that. It's no wonder for many of us being a Christian, it's not a joyous experience at all. We have become so, so hyper-vigilant that the evil one moves in and condemns us about all manner of things. That's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit, by the way. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of wrongdoing, he moves us to repentance and restoration of fellowship. But when the evil one moves in, he condemns our whole personhood. How do you change that? That's not guilt. That's a shame-based attack by the evil one. We are so disgusted with who we are. We are so ashamed. We can't even look ourselves in the mirror, and we surely don't believe God can anymore. Yes, thank you, God. I was uh, redeemed, and I was baptized on such and such date, and it was glorious. It was just like Martin Luther. I felt like I was reborn and that I entered into paradise, and now what a drag it is to drag this sinful being around so as to win your favor and get you to like me. So that's the struggle for us who are already redeemed. Oh, no. The salvation experience begins by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and remains in place until it comes to fruition when we see him or he comes for us. It's all by faith. Faith. So trusting him for his provision for our sin is always the way to be in right standing with God. Now we resist this because we can make, take no credit for it. That's why we, in essence, like to carry around this particular sign. You can't actually see it, but just about everyone here carries it around. God says, I want you to believe that I've made the way for you to be in right standing with me. And we say, thanks, that's really good, but I can take no credit. So therefore, I'll hold this cardboard sign instead. I'll work for righteousness. I'll work for it. And you know what our Father does? He doesn't cease to love us. He's not disgusted. Uh, figuratively speaking, I think he just shakes his head and said, oh, you don't yet know how to labor so as to enter into Sabbath rest. You have to work at resting in my merits, and instead you're working at working in establishing your own merits with me. Don't do that. You ain't got too many merits. Demerits, not merits. So this is a whole struggle for us. We would like to think, you see, we have the power to put ourselves in the right with God. 
We would like to think we have the power to keep ourselves in the right with God. No, we are kept. <laughs> we are kept by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that takes root in our life from faith to faith. It is by trusting in what God has done, not in what we have done, that is the way to be in right standing with God. And how can this be? Only one way, from faith to faith. This is uh, grammatically an intensified phrase, meaning entirely by faith. God does not ask us to behave in order to be saved. He asks us to believe. That's what he does. That's why this is so different than any any even beautiful religion. Not a one is really beautiful to the extent uh, that it distorts what God is asking us to do. He does not ask us to behave in order to be saved. He asks us to believe. Our best efforts to behave rightly fall far short of God's righteousness. It is only by faith in Christ that, uh, by which a sinner could be saved. Now, folks, though this truth is a revealed truth, it's not new. So Paul is not here introducing a new truth in the New Testament. I made this statement once. I make it again. Uh, I don't think there's anything new in the New Testament. What's in the New Testament can be found in the Old Testament, only it's much clearer. And we find it in its fulfillment in the New Testament. So this truth from faith to faith as the means of right standing with God is an Old Testament truth. And so the text says, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Written where? Well, written in Habakkuk. <laughs> so that's an Old Testament prophet. Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, made this statement. He said, the righteous, those who would be right with God, will live, will be saved by faith. That is an Old Testament truth. We see it filled in. We see it come to fruition in the New Testament. But it's always been the way God has operated with people. The righteous person, the one who desires to be right with God, the one who wants to be in right standing with God, must get this right, can't be wrong about it. It's only by trusting in God's provision for our unrighteousness. But we must not skip over a subtle dilemma all of this involves. Here it is. How can a holy God forgive sinners, and still be considered holy? Hmm. How can God make men and women like us, who are in the wrong, be in the right with him without nullifying his righteousness? Here's another way to put it. How can God be just and at the same time justify the unjust? You and I. The answer is in the gospel. The blood of Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel allows God to be both just and the justifier. And in it, there is power to transform. There's power in the blood. Because in the shed blood of the perfect, only begotten Son of God, the sinless Son of God, in his excruciatingly shed blood, poured out unto death, God satisfied two otherwise competing objectives. One, there must be justice. There was. 
Jesus died. Two, there must be mercy. For God is a God of mercy. Jesus died for you and me. Don't, don't show disrespect for the gospel by making it part of man-made religion. You will not find this good news in any of the religions of the world. This is different. This is a revealed marvel. This comes from the throne of grace in the form of Jesus, down to earth, where by faith we could lay hold of his finished work and thereby be in right standing with Almighty God. It's through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God can remain both just and the justifier of folks like you and I who are intensely unjust. God demands that we be righteous. That is really bad news because we are sinners. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God gives to us the very thing he demands from us. He demands righteousness. We don't have it to give. So God in his mercy has provided righteousness which comes down from heaven. And he puts it on our side of the ledger. If we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son. It isn't earned. It surely is not deserved. It is given to us by God as a free gift. It is the gift of righteousness. It's as if the sinless one, the Lord Jesus, took garments of purity and put it upon our shoulders. Though we be corrupted by sin, though it be a blemish upon our hearts and minds and wills, it's as if the Lord Jesus bequeathed this gift of righteousness to us by taking a garment of righteousness, wrapping it upon us, clothing us in it, so that as we walk around, we walk differently. We're not where we want to be, but God says it is so certain of accomplishment that I will finish the work of salvation in you which I began. I want you to walk around as if it's already completed now. I want you to walk around now clothed in garments of white linen representing righteousness. Even though you still behave unrighteously from time to time. But I want you to live in light of the reality which one day will be yours. In which all unrighteousness will be cast out of your members. Even though it wages war in your members now, I want you to walk around just as if you had not sinned. How could I do that? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I'll tell you what happened. Sin left a crimson stain. I'm dead. But he washed it white as snow. Can you see my linen garment? But I can't see yours either. <laughs> Live as if, we're, as if we're clothed in linen garments. That's our new standing. You know what God says to us right now? 
don't behave to win my favor. Don't behave to be in right standing with me. You already have it. Live consistent with your new status. <laughs> That's what he says. Grow into your new linen garments. You don't have to persuade me to bequeath it to you. <laughs> I am persuaded. How, God? What good thing do you see in me? No good thing. But I see your faith in a good and perfect Savior who suffered and died in your place. We do not possess righteousness by nature and character. It is a new status given to us by accepting the righteous one who is Jesus Christ. He does not wait for us to behave righteously. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. And then after this, he says, now live as righteous ones. I was away this past week. Uh, my oldest sister's husband died suddenly. I was given the extreme honor and privilege of officiating. And I was given the extreme honor and privilege of being prayed for by many of you. And I never felt such supernatural enablement in my entire soon-to-be 64 years. The night before my brother-in-law's passing, I could not sleep. Sometimes I can't sleep because of anxiety. Does that happen to you? It's not a thing I'm proud of, but I'm only boasting about Christ. We got nothing to boast about. So sometimes... I, I, I'm overcome by anxiety about different things, and I'm up in the middle of the night. I can't get to sleep. That happens to you? Hey, call me sometime. We'll be up together. <laughs> but this was not the case on this night. I was sleeping like a baby. And then I woke up. I knew it was God's spirit. And I prayed through the rest of the night. I just had this overwhelming conviction that almighty God was going to visit us, me, my family, in a way I never experienced. This kind of thing does not happen to me frequently. It just doesn't, but it did. And I knew it was because uh, you were praying for me. So here was the funeral, uh, and it was at a place called Beth David Chapel. So it was not your local church. And when I walked in, the funeral director said, So, Rabbi, where is your synagogue? He's wearing a head covering, you know, and I was too, to show respect. I said, well, have you heard of Orthodox rabbis and conservative rabbis and Reformed rabbis? He said, of course. I said, you're looking at a Messianic rabbi. What do you mean? I said, I believe that Yeshua, our long-awaited Messiah, has already come. So I'm a follower of Yeshua, the Messiah. Have you ever heard, I said to him, of Jewish people who believe this way? He said, I've heard. <laughs> so we were not uh, showing much affection for one another at the time. 
He said to me, well, uh, what is the name of your, what do you call it? I said, uh, Sagemont Church. And on the bulletin, I'll show it to you sometime. It says, Beth David Chapel, officiant, Reverend Stuart Rothberg, Sagemont Church, Houston, Texas. So he said, uh, Rabbi, he was calling me Rabbi, most of the rabbis end with, and he named a certain Hebrew prayer. He said, you end with that, that'll be my cue to come in and, you know, take it from there. I said, thank you so much, but I'll give you a different cue. He said, why do you mean that? I said, because I don't believe in that prayer. It's a prayer that offered to people the assurance of righteousness apart from faith in the righteous one, Jesus the Messiah. It was wishful thinking. And I'm tired of that. Uh, there is a way to be right with God, but only one way. So I told him, I'll give you the cue. Stay close. <laughs> the next day after the funeral was a holiday we are finishing today called, Shav uh, called Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. The day after the funeral. Uh, uh, the tabernacles, uh, booths are erected by Jews today all over the world to commemorate the fact that ancient Israel traveled for 40 years in temporary dwellings and were provided for by Almighty God. This is kind of a Thanksgiving holiday. So we build these temporary booths. They're called a sukkah or plural sukkot. And I related it to what another famous Jew once said, his name is Yochanan. Would you like to guess at what his English name is? It's John. John, Yochanan. Uh, uh, John said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But you know that word dwelt? It means tabernacled. So it could be translated, and the word, what's his name, by the way? That's Jesus. And Jesus became a sukkah for us and dwelt among us. He took on temporary and flesh meant to suffer and die for our sinful flesh. And then up from the grave he arose, ascended, where he sits at the right hand of Almighty God, a position of utmost exaltation. And I shared that in the service. And not one person got up to leave. The place was filled with unsaved Jewish people and many unsaved Gentile people. Two of my nephews are police officers, and all of their police officer friends were there. Hardened guys, like some others I know. <clears throat> and uh, I had prayed the night before, oh, God. Amongst other things, I said, I don't want to finish this with regrets. I don't want to regret a missed opportunity, which I may not have again. I don't want to win friends and influence people. As much as I desire to have the favor of these people, I must, oh God, by your grace, have a greater desire to see them in right standing with you. Oh God. 
give me boldness, which I do not have. I'm not a bold evangelist. Please, please overwhelm me. Do a supernatural thing. Well, he did. <clears throat> then, Billy there was one of my number one prayer supporters. I can't thank you enough. Billy sent out an email to all, of, all two of his friends. And uh, no, there were many more asking for prayer on my behalf, and I really appreciate it, Bill. And it was answered. After the funeral, we Jews do something called shiva. comes from a Hebrew word meaning seven, seven shiva. We, we sit shiva. We mourn for a seven-day period in the home of the key mourner. In this case, it was my sister. During this time, friends, relatives, neighbors come in. They come and go. They bring food so that the mourners do not have to prepare. Sometimes we cover mirrors because it's a time of grief, not adornment. The ladies don't wear makeup. Sometimes we cut garments to show our grief, so on and so forth. So people are coming and going. In my family, there's Jewish people, there's Italian people. My family's made up of Jews and Italians. That's just the way, way it is. And, uh, and it, interesting conversations. And so uh, I, 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 I had nothing planned. I was just there. And a very ultra-Orthodox couple who lived in the neighborhood, they were so Orthodox they would not even eat the food because though it was kosher, it has to be really, really, really kosher to the max in order for them to feel good. So they wouldn't even eat it. They were that, uh, they were that observant. And they engaged me in conversation about the Lord Jesus for an hour and a half. I didn't make it happen. They did. I must tell you, this does not typically happen. There was no animosity. There was no argument. There were questions and even a willingness to exchange information by email. Unbelievable. Then my niece came up to me, whose father had just passed. Forgive me for taking this time, but I have to do this, otherwise I shall explode. And I want to thank you for, for praying. I really mean this. Uh, it, uh, it, was, it was supernatural. My niece, it was her father who passed away. She's an adult. She said, Uncle Stuart, my daughter, her daughter is a student at a university. And years ago when she had her bat mitzvah, that's like a bar mitzvah, but for girls, I sent her a Bible, Old and New Testament. I took a chance. So what? So they, they get mad. What are you going to do? Turns out she's been reading it. She goes off to university. She had a Christian roommate, and uh, the Christian roommate, and she belonged to an on-campus Christian organization. She came home, and she took my niece to a church. I looked it up. Really good church. Really Bible-oriented good church. My niece has been going, but she didn't want to tell her dad, and she was trying to summon up enough courage to tell her mom. She told me this. I had no idea this was going on in her life. Then I saw a Bible on a chest of drawers, and it had the name of my nephew's son on it. It was, I peaked, it was Old and New Testament. What in the world is that doing in this house? I went over to him, he told me, he said, Uncle Stuart, while I was in the military, he's no longer, but while I was in the military, I began to explore the claims of Christ. And a friend gave me this Bible. And uh, now that you're here, could we have some private time? We spoke for a great deal of time about scripture, about gospel, about the Lord. Overwhelming. Then one day, my nephew, police officer, 30-year vet, 
he and his family came to me. They said, we would like some private time with you. Can we go to a back room? I didn't know what they had in mind. He just received a diagnosis of prostate cancer. It was affecting his wife and two adult sons. They asked me if I would pray. I said, of course. But I told them, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could pray? And you can if you first establish a connection. You see, if by faith, you see, it's by faith to faith. You have right standing with God. You can petition him yourself. Anyway, we prayed. And he texted me, and he said, when I came back, he said, my family and I have discussed this. Could you do research and find us a good church here in South Florida? We want to attend as a family. This is unbelievable. This is just, this is just so then my niece, she's a school teacher. Uh, her school teacher friends are coming. She said, Uncle Stuart, please come over. She said, I want you to meet my uncle. I'm really proud of him. Uh, he's a pastor. And, uh, and, and, and she said, and I, I have been visiting a church with uh, my daughter, but I, she's away at school now, and I want to go, but I don't want to go alone. I don't feel comfortable going alone. And one of the school teachers said to her, well, what church is it? And my niece mentioned it, and the other teacher said, that's my church. I go, th I go there. We'll, we'll go together. <gasps> on and on and on this happened. I'm seated at a table, maybe 12 people. We're just eating. We're just making small talk. My brother-in-law's sister, an adult lady, she said to me, Stuart, I don't know if you knew this, but I work in a Methodist church now in New Jersey. You what? She said, yeah, 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 I wear a shirt. It says, uh, I work with the children. It's like a daycare thing. And, and the shirt says, St. John's uh, Methodist Church, and there's a big cross on it. You wear a shirt with a cross on it? She said, yeah, yeah, my parents were alive. I don't know what they think, because they used to tell me, if ever you see a cross, don't ever look at it, because bad things will happen to you. Now she's wearing a cross. So she says to me, this is an earshot of everyone. She says, so what is this? Are you like a Jew for Jesus? I said, yeah, that's exactly it. You see, you got it. You got it pegged. See, I am a Jew, and, and, and I'm a Jew who believes in Jesus. So for me, it wasn't subtraction. It was addition. I didn't subtract my Jewishness. I added faith in the Jewish Messiah. Well, this wasn't on the sly. People were not sharpening up their steak knives. It was not open conversation. I never had anything. I never had anything like that in my entire life. It was just, it was hallelujah thing. <laughs> Jesus came as a sukkah. This was not his nature to be enfleshed. He's preexistent deity. He has no beginning nor any end. But he was birthed for our benefit, enfleshed for our benefit, so as to uh, suffer overwhelming things for our benefit and in our place. But then it ended. That was just temporary. That was just temporary. He won victory over the last enemy, death. We share in it with him. And we'll see him in his unmasked deity one day. No more enfleshment. We'll see his unbridled deity, you see, one day. Jesus is the means of right standing with God. For Jews and for Gentiles, for everybody. Don't you agree? Well, then I want to ask you to do something, and I, I'll be brief. Could you, just for the sake of some very serious uh, concentration, could you, could you bow your heads 
just for some, some reflection. And could you close your eyes? I, I only mean this so that you would not be distracted by anyone seated around you. And I, we'll just take a minute or two, so if you could just stay with me. Could you just answer this question? It's, it's, it's for you to answer. Are you right with God? Can you stand up soon, head up, shoulders back, walking out as if there's nothing between you and God? You are together. You could do life together. There's nothing in the way. You're not at odds with God. There's plenty wrong with you for sure. And yet you have this assurance that you're still rightly related to God because Jesus, the only righteous one, stood in the gap. I just want you to answer the question for yourself. Are you right with God? Yes or no? Yes or no? Why do I only give those two options? If I asked you, are you married or not? it would be reduced to the same two options. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. This idea, I'm not sure, is a no. So I ask you, are you wedded to Almighty God? Do you have right standing with him? If the answer is yes, could you please raise your hand? God bless you, and thank you, Almighty God, for granting right standing to these who put their trust in you. Thank you. And if the answer is no, I don't have assurance that I'm right with God. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Can you raise your hand? Thank you. You could put your hand down. Thank you. Just slip it up. We don't do this typically, but it's so vital. Be honest. It's between you and God. Does he have you? Thank you so much, ma'am. You could put your hand down. Is there anyone else? I just want to know. No, you need to. Thank you, my friend. You could put your hand down. I just want, no, I want you to know whether you're right with God or not. If you're not, um, the first step is to acknowledge that. Thank you to these who've already raised their hand off. Is there anyone is there anyone? Else? Thank you. Uh, you could put your hand down. Thank you so much for your honesty. You just search your heart. You can know. Am I right with God? Am I not? Thank you for raising your hands. Um, could I ask everyone now to stand to your feet and let me pray for these who raise their hands, and then propose something to those of you who did. Could I pray for you as we take leave of one another? I'd like to thank God for this. I couldn't wait to get back here to this church family. I couldn't wait. It's the beachhead from which we go out and live the life, don't you know? And I, 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 I miss the beachhead. <laughs> so thank God for for giving you and me right standing and for these others who so authentically raised their hands and said, I'm not there, I'm not there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
We are so grateful for what you have done. And our appreciation of it is a growing thing. The ramifications of your suffering, substitutionary death for us can escape us if we don't reflect on it. Like Martin Luther, when the truth of the gospel grasps us, it's like being reborn and entering into paradise. What a load we carry apart from you lifting it, putting it on your whipped, brutalized shoulders in our place. What a joy to be free, free to walk and live and function as ones who have right standing with you, all, all by your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And for these who are not there yet, would you, oh God, help them? You love them. Would you wrap your arms around them? What is it keeping them from you? Maybe understanding the way of righteousness. Maybe other obstacles. God of all grace, would you make a roadway, a pathway, a straight way into a wonderful relationship with you? Oh God, Lord Jesus, as we praise you, you being high and lifted up, would you perform the work of salvation, redemption, righteousness in the lives of these who are uncertain about it at this point? It's what you came to do. It's what you lived for. It's what you died for. It's what you live to do now. Oh God, please perform the work of salvation in their lives. And those of us who've been attired in garments of righteousness, put it within us to simply live consistently with the new pronouncement of righteousness that you have imputed to us. We love you, Lord Jesus. How could we not look at all you've done and are doing for us? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.